We're going to be talking this morning, in the next few minutes, about the subject of can a woman teach publicly. We addressed this last week, and I knew we wouldn't finish it, so we're going to try to finish this up this week, although uh, there's a lot more that could be said about this than we're going to be able to say even in this lesson today. But we can at least address the subject and cover a few of the scriptures that talk about this subject. I want to go first just to take us to the scriptures first of all, because that's where we like to start our discussion of anything, to this passage that is generally the one that's the center of people's discussion and disagreement about this subject. And that's this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Now I realize this is in a larger context, but for sake of time, I'm going to talk mostly about these verses rather than the whole thing this morning. I don't mean to ignore the other ones, and I'm aware that they exist, and do a whole lesson on just that context. But here the Apostle Paul says, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Going back a little bit, this is in contrast to verse 1 of this chapter, where he says, let men lift up holy hands in every place publicly. Now he comes down and says, let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. And so we talked about that somewhat last week, and that's the passage that causes so much consternation in many places. Until I was a fairly young man, this didn't cause problems in churches for the most part, because people were taking this more at face value. We lived in a different society for good or for bad, but it's become, so to speak, controversial now because people don't agree with this passage or what it says or or at least an interpretation of it. And you see this is becoming more and more of an issue in more and more conservative type churches, not just Episcopalians or Presbyterian churches, but in more conservative type churches like Southern Baptists. This is a big issue. And who would have thought that 20 years ago? You would never believe that that was the case, but it is. And it is going to become an issue in many churches of Christ as time goes on. Very clearly is going to be that. Uh, there was a controversy, uh, two or three recently. One was a woman named Beth Moore left the uh, Southern Baptist Convention because of this issue, because she's a teacher. She spoke at a Sunday morning service in a Baptist church I think in 2019, could be 2020, caused a little bit of a problem and uh, and some other things. And so she left and said, basically, I'm not with you guys anymore on this because I need to preach. I need to teach publicly. And so she left. There's a big church in California, the Saddleback Church. Rick Warren, who was famous for the book Purpose Driven Life, uh, is a pre, was the preacher there for many years started that church, I think. It's very large. And they've been a member of the Southern Baptist Convention for a long, long time. So they, he, he retired. They got a new guy from Seattle named Andy Wood and his wife came down. And now they've been booted out of the Southern Baptist Convention because they've appointed his wife as a co-pastor with him. He is, he says, the head lead pastor and she is just the teaching pastor. And so she speaks occasionally on Sunday mornings and things like that, but she's not the head pastor. And so, um, for example, he was interviewed about this, 
And, and so he, I'll give you some of the reasons why he said this is fine, just real quickly before we go back to the Bible, because I think you'll see, we'll talk about a few of these verses. And I think, now I'm going to give you my judgment. This is very shallow understanding of the scriptures that he gives here. For a man who's leading a very large, important church, this is a relatively shallow understanding of Scripture, in my opinion. And of course, anybody could come and listen to me preach and say, that's a shallow kind of excuse for a preacher to... Okay, well, that's fair. I understand that. But uh, they have to look at the words, not back educational background. So he says, he said, in the New Testament, were there both men and women who had... The, the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the shepherd, and the teacher gifting as described by the apostle Paul. So were there women who were apostles and evangelists and shepherds and teachers and had this gift? See, everything he says is based on the fact that this is a spiritual gift of teaching that you have to use. And his answer to that is yes. There were women apostles. There were women uh, pastors and teachers and shepherds and so forth. And so he mentions uh, uh, Junia in, in Romans 16, 7, as an apostle, uh, which is not true. And, and Philip had four daughters who were prophets. That's true. That is true. The question is, were they prophesying openly in the Sunday morning assembly or the public assemblies? And the, that's very doubtful or questionable. And the reason I say that is because Paul seems to forbid that very thing. So you take it, you can't take a generic statement here. This woman is a prophetess and assume that she was exercising this gift in the assembly because Paul specifically says she can't do that in 1 Corinthians, uh, and 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 11. And then, uh, further, John 2016 says that the first evangelists after the resurrection are women. So he takes Mary Magdalene reporting to the apostles that she didn't find a body in the tomb as her being an evangelist. That's a pretty far, far stretch for someone who ought to know more about the New Testament than that and how those words are used. But those are the kind of arguments. He mentions Aquila and Priscilla as being shepherds in the church here, and Paul calls Phoebe a teacher. The Bible does not call Priscilla and Aquila shepherds or elders in a church. And when it talks about them teaching together, it's obvious the teaching is private because it specifically says that Priscilla and Aquila took Apollos aside. Apollos was preaching publicly. They took him aside and they taught him. Of course she was a teaching. Of course she was teaching. The question is, was she teaching authoritatively as the teacher from an assembly like this? It's obvious she wasn't doing that for the very text that he mentions here. But his view is that she was considered a preacher. So he goes on to mention uh, some of these other things here. I don't want to bore you with all of that. And, and I'm not trying to slander this fellow. I don't know. But he, he made these public statements about this. And uh, he says that his real defense in the end is that, yes, my wife Stacy preaches here. But she's not doing so without authority. All the elders and me as the head elder, we give her authority to preach, and so therefore it's okay if she does. Because she's not exercising any authority over a man. She's operating under our authority. Well, the question there is, by what authority do you allow her to preach? That's the real question. Not whether you say it's okay. Because you could say a lot of things are okay, and you might be wrong. The question is, as always, about these subjects. And I'm sure it's what you're interested in, mostly. 
Not what Andy Wood has to say about it or Rick Warren, but what does the Scripture say about this subject? So we kind of began a long journey into this last week by talking about the fact that God intentionally made two genders, two sexes, distinct from each other and having different purposes for this. So I'm going to make two arguments. Now, wait a minute. I'm a a pre-law major and a competitive debater years ago, and so when I say argument, I'm meaning a thought process, A, B, and C, not we're going to have an argument about this and fight. That's not how I'm using the word at all. An argument is a, is a reason why you believe or something is true or false. So you make a structured reason why it's given. And the Bible makes arguments all the time for propositions. See, the Bible is what we would call propositional truth. It's expressed sometimes in a manner of narratives and stories and illustrations or poetry, but it's presenting propositional truth. There is a God. He created man. He created two gen- Those are propos- propositions that are put forth by the teaching of the Bible, and you can use you can then use the scriptures properly and to make arguments. So I want to go to back to First Corinthians eleven. Early in this chapter, we saw last week, and I want to go back through it. He says that the head of every man is Christ, the head of Christ is God, and the head of the man is head of the woman is the man. So he makes a hierarchy there of of God, Christ, man, and woman, as far as headship. Not as far as who's superior to the other person. Because it's obvious that Christ and God are equals. It says that Christ did not think it robber to be equal with God. So he's not talking about equality of personhood or equality of value. He's talking about headship or authority. And he puts this order, God, Christ, man, woman. And now he goes back to this and that the subject is whether a woman should wear a covering or not. Uh, and, and praying or prophesying. Doesn't say whether this praying or prophesying is public or private. Doesn't say that in the chapter at all. Uh, and based on 1 Corinthians 14, a little bit later, which we'll come to, I think it was private prophesying. But here's what it says. Why is it so that a woman should wear a covering when she's praying or prophesying? He says, for man is not from woman, but woman from man. Notice the words I've got highlighted, for and from. They indicate different things. Nor was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. There's a purpose of creation. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of the woman, nor the woman independent of the man in the Lord. Neither one are more important than the other. As far as the Lord's concerned, they have different roles. And for as the woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman. But all things are from God. So yes, woman came from man. But literally every man that's been in the world has come literally through a woman. And so which one is more important? Well, it's obvious neither one are more important. They both have their place in God's creation that he made. And he called them all good, as we saw last week from the book of Genesis. But his is Paul's reasoning. And so he says that for man is not from woman, but woman from the man, nor was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. So what this is, the word from and of indicates source or primacy. 
And in Matthew 19, when Jesus says, in the beginning he made male and female, he's trying to tell you that the order of this creation, an act of God, it was not by accident or by chance or incidental. It was actually intended to be that way, that he made man first, and from the man he made a woman. That's the way God intended for it to be. It wasn't an oversight, or it wasn't a meaningless thing that he did. It was his purpose in doing it this way. And so from indicates source, and that would give you the idea of headship or or primacy, as it were. I think I have primacy there. That means first in order of things, and secondly, he made the woman. That was his intention in doing it this way. And so that's something that has to be reckoned with in this entire discussion. If you claim to be a Bible believer, you have to reckon with that idea and come up with some some thought about that as to how that relates to this issue. You may not like my conclusions, but as I say about a lot of things, I don't say this as a smart aleck, even though I am one, Get your own explanation. If you don't like my understanding of it or interpretation, then, then what this scripture demands is that you get your own that makes sense and is honoring the word. So if you think you can come up an explanation that honors the text of the Bible and is different than this, then so be it. But don't just say, I don't like it. That's not what I believe. I feel called to believe something else and then just go on about your business. You have to deal with what Paul says here. And have to understand that that's his purpose. And, and the idea of four indicates purpose. So he says the woman, the man was not made for the woman, but the woman for the man. The purpose of the creation of male and female were different from each other. Oh, there is a sense in which they're the same. Both are to honor and glorify God, and they both do, when they all both act in accordance with their created purpose. But the purposes for which he made each one are different, and that's what he means by for indicating purpose in this case. One being made for the other. Now, there are lots of other scriptures we could look at, but in this case, he says, nevertheless, in verse 11, as a balance to this, some, so people didn't go understanding it incorrectly, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. In human reasoning, they can become independent of each other. They don't need each other. That's where we are today in our society. Every individual is so uh, radically autonomous that we don't have to be a man or a woman. We can be whatever we want to be, and we should uh, exercise that autonomy. We don't need each other. We don't need to be married. We don't need any kind of connection because each is independent. And 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 uh, strangely enough, for many years, feminists argued that... that um, that we're the same. Men and women are the same. And now they're having to find out that's a big problem because if they are, how come these women, men that become women are so good at track and swimming? You know, that kind of thing. So I got a big problem going on right now because are men and women the same? No, they're not the same. That's a fundamental lie of the feminists of the 70s and onward that men and women are the same. They are not the same. Should they both be treated fairly? Absolutely. That's not the issue anymore, though. Probably never was the real issue. But the question is, are they independent of each other? And and the Bible says, no. It says, as man comes from as woman comes from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. This indicates that there ought to be a mutual love and respect between men and women. Not a competition. 
In the 60s and 70s, the feminist movement turned everything into a competition between men and women rather than what the Bible had put forth. It was a cooperation and interdependence. Now, you can argue that our society was doing the competition before. I don't care about that. Just because society has a wrong answer doesn't mean feminism's answer is correct. You know, it's possible for both people to be wrong, and they probably both were. Society before the 70s was probably wrong about a lot of things about this, certainly. But that doesn't mean that the answer of feminism is the correct answer, you see. The correct answer is found in the Bible. Interdependence and mutual respect. That's the, and cooperation as a team. That's the correct answer. That's the, that's to be found in marriage. See, marriage today, marriages fail today because they are presented to young people as a competition. You've got to make sure that you get what's yours in marriage. And as long, when I meet a young couple and that's their view of marriage, I immediately am alarmed because that marriage is almost always doomed to either failure through divorce or failure through alienation. They will end up alienated from each other or divorced because marriage is not designed to be a competition about who gets to be in control. But feminism placed all of marriage as on a basis of who's in control of the marriage. And once you do that, the whole thing is lost. Because the Bible never pictures marriage as a competition about who's in control. The Bible settles the issue of who's in control about to tell you that the husband is head of the wife. The issue is settled. Now the question is, how are you going to work that out and cooperate with one another? Now, what the Bible says, let's go to this passage in a bigger context here, this 1 Timothy 2 passage. We're going to have to rush along here, but this isn't going to work. I'm on slide 18 of 43. And I don't want to preach about this next week. So... Um, I may not, I probably won't, but doesn't mean there's not a part three somewhere. I desire, therefore, Paul says, that men pray everywhere or in every place, lifting up holy hands without wrath and disputing. Praying, men pray everywhere. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Those are parallel statements. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Why? Well, here's the word again. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So that's his first statement. He gives you a reason why he says a woman is to learn in silence and a man is to pray everywhere. And the reason is creation. God At creation, God established this order. That's his point. For the reason why this is true is this. So there's the reason. Now what he goes on to say from that then, and we'll come back to the other verses in a second. I do not permit women to have authority. For Adam was first formed, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So the second reason why these, this is true comes not from creation, but from what we generally call the fall, when Adam, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. The process of that incident in the garden, which we're not going to take, I had all the verses on here to read all that, we probably won't do that this morning. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 3. You see that it was that Satan attacked the woman first, and she's the one that took the fruit and brought it to her husband, gave it to her husband. They both sinned. The question is not who sinned. They both sinned. They sinned in different ways for different reasons. You know, men and women usually do that. Today, men and women both sin, but they sin in different ways and different for different reasons. But they're both sinners. 
Men and women are both guilty of a lust, usually for different reasons. Different kinds of things attract their attention, but they both can be guilty of lust. They both can be greedy, but they're usually greedy for different reasons, and it manifests itself in different ways. Men and women are both liars. They lie about different things. They lie for different purposes in different ways. Why is that? Because they were made different, that's why. They're not the same creature. They have different motivations, that's why. Doesn't mean one is better, which is better. It isn't any better. In fact, in the New Testament, in the New Testament, when the, the fall is discussed, I don't like to call it the fall, because the Bible doesn't really call it that, but you know the events of Genesis 3 in the garden with Satan. When that event is discussed, at least half the time, the one who is presented as the sinner is Adam. By his sin, all men fell into transgression. So the Bible doesn't present Eve as the sinner and Adam as the innocent person. Here's another, that's the other fallacy I keep pointing out to you. Human thinking, especially about marriage and all these kind of issues, always has this motive, always has this thought process. That if I can prove that my husband did something wrong, that must mean that I'm good. Really? Because he got mad at me and hit me, that must mean that my behavior is perfect and spotless. I must be the innocent one. Is that true? That's an absurdity. And if you think a little bit about it, of course it's not true. But that's how we present that. That's how we present to ourselves. If we can prove the other person did something wrong, it means I was innocent. No, it may mean you're both guilty, just of different things. It's true. Some things men do in marriages they can be arrested for. That doesn't mean that the wife is innocent. It just means she's probably guilty of different sins than he's guilty of. That's all. And just because the law values one action over another action or one thought doesn't mean that God values all those things the same. God doesn't value the fact that he was arrested any worse than the fact that you did this or you did that. It doesn't. God didn't have that value system. Where do we get that? We don't get it from the Bible, that's for sure. Because both men and women are sinners as a whole. And so he goes back and says, that the reason, there are two reasons that this is true about a woman teaching. Number one, creation, and number two, the fall. Both of those had to be taken into consideration. Now here's the reason that's important. I don't take too much time on this. There are at least two, now look, I'm, I don't know about fourth wave feminism for sure. I haven't thought about that in relation to this. Third and fourth wave feminism are different breeds of cats than first and second wave feminism. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, more power to you. <laughs> but third and fourth wave feminism are, are, are dealing with the transgender issues and things like that. A lot of it is. The, le, the, uh, uh, the gay and, le, and lesbian and transgender issues are the issues of third and fourth wave feminism. But first, first and second wave feminism dealt with this issue. There were two kinds of feminists, and there probably still are. One of those kind of feminists is I would call a secular feminist who doesn't believe the Bible or God's will at all about any of these things and just believes that politically men and women should be equal politically and in economics and so forth. Now they have to buttress all of that with a lot of psychological and social arguments. But that was the idea. that There should be no role distinctions in any area of society. That's the general secular feminist. The, the biblical feminists, there were feminists who wanted to be a feminist and thought it was cool, but and they wanted to believe the Bible also, and they're called biblical feminists, and they wrote a lot of books. And their thinking was, well, it used to be true 
that God made a distinction between men and women. They have to deal with Bible passage. If you're going to be a biblical feminist, you have to deal with Bible passage, just like the one we've been reading. And they said, well, it used to be true that God made a distinction between men and women. But that was only because of the fall. And now that Christ has come, since Jesus came and did away with the effects of the fall, then all those distinctions have been done away. That's the argument that's made. So since Christ came and reversed the fall, and that's why he would say that there's no distinction between male and female in the Lord in Galatians 3.28, because there's no distinctions anymore. Christ did away with all those. Sounds good, doesn't it? I just wish it were true. And the reason I know it's not true is because the same one who told us about a lot of that other stuff, the Apostle Paul right here, is using the fall as the reason why women are not permitted to teach. And this is not early in New Testament history, First Timothy, isn't it? Isn't. He says the fall, the effects of the fall, are just as important to talk about the subject of subjection as creation. So and he says here that creation, God made men and women in a certain order, that, that is what presupposes the, the idea of headship and subjection between male and female. And he says the fall, because of the actions of both Adam and Eve being different, they presuppose headship and subjection. So the liberal feminist argument goes out the window by what Paul says here in this verse. So it gives these two reasons. Number one, Adam was first formed, then Eve. There's nothing we can do to change that fact as men or women today. The truth is, ladies, I will tell you, I know you don't believe, I know you don't believe me. I know you don't believe me. But I know it's true. In a general way, men do not want to be the boss. Men want to ride ATVs and shoot guns and, and you know, watch, play video games. They do not want to be, you want to be the boss, not the man. That's the truth. Now, I don't know if that should go out over the internet or not, if I get canceled, but that's a fact. That's what we see around me. That's what I've seen for 50 years as a preacher, nearly 50 years, is that fact. And so it's just reversed. So, but he gives these two reasons, both the creation and the fall. But the subje- headship and subjection is not changed. It was just reinforced at the fall. They were established at creation, these roles were, and they were reinforced by the fall. Now, I don't want to take the time to go and show you all the verses about that, but when you look at, well, maybe I can uh, pull up, oh, I did the wrong thing. Wouldn't you know it? It's never. I never do the wrong thing. How did that happen? Don't know. Push the wrong button. Let's see if I can find that verse. Notice here in the middle of this text about where God is speaking to Adam and Eve after Adam and Eve sinned against him by eating of the fruit. When God confronted Adam about this, he said, the woman whom you gave to me with me, she gave me the tr- of the tree and I ate. What a weasel. <laughs> Makes me ashamed to be a man. And I mean that. What a weasel. But this is the whole point I'm making. He doesn't want to be the boss. He's not going to take responsibility for this. He's going to dump it off on whoever he can because he's a man. That's a natural tendency. And sometimes men overcompensate for this by being authoritative and bossy. You always have, you always have your, everything in human life 
everything in life is a bell curve, of course. You have to understand that, meaning you have some in either extreme, but that doesn't mean that the middle isn't true. And then God talked to Satan and condemned him and said that basically the woman would be the source of his demise. This woman who you, you attack humanity through the woman. It was not the point God's making. It's not an accident that when Satan looked at these two here in the garden, he went after Eve first. Not, that's not an accident. He looked at their nature, what they were like, and said, that's the one I want to attack. There were crooks when I worked at Burger Chef years ago, uh, working the front line, the cash There's always crooks coming in trying to cheat the tellers and, and uh, trick them into giving them extra change and money and all, free food and all this stuff. And so the boss tried to tell me, he said, now look, what they do, and you could, you're now the assistant manager, I knew the door, so, you know, I, I, I got to wear a, you know, come to think of it, they didn't even give me a special hat or nothing. <laughs> I got the same pay, I was just the assistant, assistant to the manager, let's put it that way. Anyway, he said, they will come in this store, and they will watch, sit in the back over there, and they will watch the clerks at the counter. They'll watch them. And they, they pick out the one that seems the most nervous or the one that seems the least sure of herself, least experienced or himself. They'll pick out the one that's struggling a little bit and they will only go to that that clerk. And they will try to get money from that clerk. Well, that's what Satan did. He went to the one that he thought he could make headway with. In this case, it was Eve. Because he could deceive her. His trick was not to overpower her. He didn't want to overpower her. He wanted to deceive her. And that's why he went to Eve. Now what that means is this. Yes, the woman was deceived. That was the problem. But it also means that Adam sinned intentionally. He knew better. Which is worse? Somebody that sins knowing better or someone who's deceived? Well, I'll leave that up to you. Which one is good with God? Neither one. All right. But Adam apparently sinned much more intentionally than Eve did. And that's why God holds him accountable. So he blames her right away. And then to the woman he says, I will, he, he takes this woman then who has been deceived and he says, through you is going to come the seed. Through you is going to come the savior. This is a promise in verse 15. A first promise of the Messiah right here in verse 15. I'm going to bring the savior through you. Well, I thought, I thought the Bible said all women were horrible. No, the Bible doesn't say that at all. That's what feminists say about the Bible. God pulls the woman up and says, I'm going to bring the Savior through you. Don't despair, Eve. You're the, you're the one I'm going to bring the Savior through. And to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you will bring forth children. And your desire shall be toward your husband or for your husband. Some versions say, but he will rule over you or and he will rule over you. That last phrase uh, it's been interpreted variously, but from reading it over and over and over, I think it means something very simple. It means that, yes, you will still, now that you've done this, now that you've sinned this way, your desire will always be to lead your husband, to be over your husband, or to be where he is. He's the head. Your desire is always going to be to be the head, but he will rule over you. He already was ruling over you, supposedly, he let you lead for a time here and see what happens. So he says, you're still going to have this desire. That's going to be part of your problem as a woman. And yet he's still going to be your head. What do we see played out in history between the sexes? 
We see this very thing played out all the time in various ways, both individually in, in micro settings in marriages and in society as a whole. We see this very problem played out. And tells Adam, though, he doesn't say, oh, because you were deceived or whatever. No. He says, because you heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, uh, curses the ground for your sake. He curses not Adam, but the ground. God never curses Adam here, never curses Eve. He brings consequences to them, and he cursed the ground for Adam's sake. So Adam would have a harder time. Didn't curse Adam. Don't believe the Calvinist storyline on this. But in any event, the reason he condemned Adam was because he, instead of being the leader and saying, no, Eve, I know you mean well, but we can't do this. That's wrong. He knew better. God told him directly what tree he could eat of. Eve heard it secondhand from him. He condemned Adam for not saying, no, we can't do that as a leader. Now, this has been the problem in marriages and churches. Listen, all, all the... Uh, being in churches all these years and seeing so many things unfold. Sometimes I, some, I think I'm dealing with a man, with a problem with a man and some controversy. As often as not, I'm not dealing with that man. I'm dealing with a shadow person, his wife, who is at home behind the scenes. Because he and I can come to some agreement. We have agreement in a business meeting. And the next time we meet, it's all different because now he went home and talked to somebody and now everything's different again. You see. So it's there. It's interesting. So Satan tempted woman to take the headship. Their sin was in role reversal. And what it produced was alienation, blame shifting, and distrust. Now we could do a lot more with some of the, this passage, but we'll not do that. Oh, I did the wrong thing again. Not do that this morning. I keep trying just to take a look at some of these so we can go on. But the consequences of their sin then were laid out for them. Her created role was intensified. She'd bring forth children in pain. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that childbirth before the fall was easy and, and smooth. God didn't physically change woman at this point in time to make childbirth not painful and or painful. What pain did what pain did Eve experience that was a consequence of her sin? It wasn't bearing children uh that was painful physically. Eve bore the pain of her sin and seeing her children, her sons, kill each other. One of them killed the other one and ran off and she never saw him again, perhaps. That's the pain of children right there. It isn't that that you have pain when you bear them. It's the pain you have after you bear them. That's the problem. And that pain was intensified. Why? Because every parent knows you know when you're a young parent and you see them say a word or do something and you go, oh, that was me. That's what I just saw. I saw me. And you see pain. You see, if, nobody's ever felt this before. You see your children say or do something, you think, where'd they learn that? Well, they learned that from you. And you, you brought them into this world. I've told you a story before. I remember sitting with my, my oldest son, Matthew, who's what, 47 or something now. This was a long time ago. I was coming home on a Sunday night. First, the first, he went to church a few days after he was born. Relatively, with a week or so. We went to church that night. Uh, morning and we're on our way home on a little Toyota station wagon. Stopped at a red light in Boca Raton where I was preaching. And on the radio, I always had the radio on, 
was a church service from the Metropolitan Church from somewhere. The Metropolitan Church at that time was a nationwide homosexual church. This was 1976. And they were, they were teaching this on the radio. And I, I realized what it was when I was listening to it. And I almost began to cry at that red light. I sat there, left turn, and I just almost began to cry. Maybe I did. What kind of a world did I bring my son into? What's he going to have to face in his life? What am I going to have to do to stop that? What's going to happen to him? And I want to have more children, but now we, and then we had five. So, And there right away was the pain, you see. And I guess he's saying mothers may experience that pain even more deeply because they bore this child. That's what my mother always told me. You're going to do what I tell you because I bore you in my body for nine months. And it was, well, no, seven months. And it wasn't that much fun. So you're going to go to Florida College whether you like it or not because I bore you in my body. You know, this, is what, this is what my mother told me. All right. So man's creative role was intensified. His role as a provider would be toilsome. Death would be his companion. And so these God-given roles were accentuated here in this event. Now I want to move on just real quickly. Our time is just about gone. Well, it is gone, isn't it? You know what? I think we're going to have to save this because I wanted to take a look at the role of public teaching about men praying everywhere, women being in silence. I got sidetracked there, but real quickly, that passage regulates any role in a public church, in a church where a woman is teaching as the teacher over a man. Teaching, and I think that's the context in which the passage is, as the teacher. She's not teaching. Look, if, if she tells little Andrew here to shh, be quiet, is she teaching? Yes, she's teaching. She's speaking in the assembly. She's not silent because she's having to correct the children. She may lean over to me when I'm sitting next to her and say, um, don't forget to do what you, you know, straighten up your collar. Check your fly. You know, she may say something like that to me. She's instructing me. Is that the kind of teaching? Oh, those are purely hypothetical things there. Uh, wouldn't want you to think that's ever happened. But in any event, uh, is she teaching in the way that Paul's talking about teaching over a man? No, she's not. That's incidental, and she's just talking to me as a person. But this is teaching as the teacher or exercising authority in a church over a man. And yet, you know, things could happen in incidental ways that, of course, that might be necessary sometimes. But but that's not the context of which he's talking. So this passage regulates any role where a woman exercises authority over a man in this group setting. And it, the man's role is teaching and authority. Her role, by contrast, in this passage, is quietness and submission. Doesn't mean there can't be any teaching. Doesn't mean she's not a help. It just means that's the role that she plays in both of them carrying out the work of the church. And I think if, if you were here at this church, hopefully, if you were a member here over time, hopefully you would see that our women, the women of this church, both single and married, do a, a huge portion of the work of this church, if not the majority of the work that goes on here, of teaching the gospel and caring for people that need to be cared for and making sure things get done that should be done for people. You would see that that's exactly what happens here. 
And that's the way it should be. Yet you would not see them standing up here instructing publicly the congregation or teaching a class over men because that's what the scriptures say that they should not do. But they can work in the ways that God does, has said it was fine, and they should do it, and men should encourage that. Now, I know churches, not all of them encourage the women to take part in the things and give them work to do and and lean on them and and lift them up. No, they try to put the women down and disparage them or relegate them to a back corner. That's not what the Bible says about this. And hopefully that's not what you would see if you were here over time about how women we're done. So we're going to stop this morning. I've got more to say about this, but we don't have time. And I appreciate very much your attention to the things we have said. So the Bible does not give the answer that Andy Wood and and um, Beth Moore have about this question. That probably shouldn't surprise you. But it gives a different answer. And we ought to be content with that answer. Now, the problem with all of this gender confusion that's going on now is we're on the next level away from this. We're not even close to this level of discussion. We're on another whole level of discussion. Of course, the churches that believe that you can identify whatever sex you want aren't worried about whether a woman can be a preacher or not. Those churches are so far beyond Bible authority that they don't care about that issue at all. So this is only going to affect people that care about what the Bible says about something. And I hope that's you. So if you need to change your thinking about this, uh, take a look at this, the scriptures I mentioned. And think about what they do say and how that comes out in real life. We would encourage you to do that. We're going to sing this song that our brother selected, number number 380, as a song of encouragement. And this is designed to give you a few moments to think about your condition before the Lord. If you've never obeyed the gospel of Christ, confessed his name in belief, uh, and, and been baptized for the remission of your sins, we encourage you to do that this morning. Do what the Bible says and to fully become a Christian and be his, have your sins washed away. We can help you with that if you've been thinking about it this very hour. Everything is ready. If this morning you'd like to ask this church to pray with you about a sin or a problem or just something difficult in your life, you can also come to the front at this time and we'll pray with you about that to encourage you as your brothers and sisters. Can you? Will you respond? Come to the front right now as we stand and sing.